yeah, I think nostalgia, you're right. Nostalgia is a big part. And also having that uh, that possibility. Like, I feel like Batman's one of those, if I were going to place money on characters that are still going to be here Odysseus style long after all my stuff's forgotten, I'd put right. some money on Batman. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. Uh, and Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, like the big three, the Trinity. I hope so. Of DC. For all I know, you know, what, two, three hundred years from now? Uh, hopefully not since the advent of video, but who knows? Uh, they'll, maybe they'll think we believed in them. Like, oh, yeah, they, they just, have Batman. just because he liked Batman. This was his god worship. <laughs> it could be that all those Greeks were just, yeah, that was just their, their heroes and they had action figures and that was it. I would love to, to know that the Greeks actually played with like ceramic versions of Odysseus and, you know, um, uh, all the characters from the Iliad and, you know, Paris and all those guys and, like, reenacted the Trojan War. Um, and they had, like, little wooden Trojan horses, like, they pushed around, you know, when they were kids. And they were, like, collectible, right? And you're like, oh, I got the super rare Achilles, right? Uh, with the removable heel. Uh, as you got so older, you would be searching ancient eBay for that Achilles you had as a child, sure. <laughs> $400 for it, even though it was only $2 when you had it. Uh why did I let my mom throw out my Achilles? <laughs> <laughs> there's, I mean, there's probably a good short story in that somewhere, I would think. Yeah, it's, uh, you're welcome to it. I, I would love to read it. <laughs> I imagine uh, if you go back, they probably had like little, you know, how the action figures a lot of times they'll have like squeeze their legs and their arms move or they got a little button on them. Probably uh, some of those pots and things had some secret uh, some actions. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool, yeah. <laughs> a little custom like we have the the collectible cards right um you got pokemon and digimon and all those things uh i mean they had that like coins right um oh, yeah. that, uh were very rare like did you get the caesar you know with the you know his head already cut off or whatever i don't know um <laughs> yeah i really need to have this whatever but i can't part with my headless caesar right exactly <laughs> if i had one of the other ones but this <laughs> is my age version uh, <laughs> well i always said that actually i would know that i really made it as an author when one of my characters had been turned into an action figure uh and you know as of yet it hasn't happened uh i think in large part because you know it has to have a film adaptation uh, in order to justify that kind of marketing, but uh, like that's got to be that's got to be a, a stepping stone, right? Um, I think if you got like a graphic novel adaptation, you might have at least a shot at an action figure. Yeah, that would be cool. Definitely, probably some kind of visual representation. Although I think I had a Harry Potter action figure before they cast Daniel Radcliffe. I can't remember for sure. Okay, interesting. So it wasn't an action figure, but it was like a doll that was very. I mean, you know, it looked like the character. Right, yeah. Uh, or Funko, you know, uh, get your little Pops guy. Um, do they, now, do they have action figures of authors? I had an Edgar Allan Poe at one time. Well, I know um, with the Funkos, uh, you can get your own Funkos made. So, like, a lot of the times, the Funkos that get sold in the store are uh, somebody funded that. That's part of a publicity campaign. Like, okay. hey, make sure you offer that, and we'll cover part of the price so you won't take a loss on it. Just make sure it's there in the store. Nice, yeah. And who knows which is which, because nobody wants to admit that, yeah, that was my vanity Funko. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be buried with that. 
Once in a while, I see a character that's like, who would buy that? No one's buying that. I think that must be the vanity one. <laughs> well, I know I've seen author action. I know I saw a Stephen King action figure once for sure. But that's the problem. Both the, I think the good thing and the bad thing about maybe being a famous author it's like when I talked to Hugh Howie, who I would think would be a really famous author, maybe the problem is I talked to him before the Wool TV show comes out, and, and he's about to become really through the stratosphere famous. Um, but, you know, he, he was able to walk around, no problem. People didn't necessarily recognize him. He wasn't accosted. He was still going to the store, no problem. Um, I would think if you're George R.R. R. Martin, though, and especially if you if you wear his little conductor hat or whatever, yeah. you have to do like a, a wig and maybe some eye makeup. And <laughs> go out and he's cultivated an image. Uh, so, I mean, I think most of the most of the authors that I, I know and love um, until I actually flipped to the back of the book enough times, I wouldn't have recognized them on the street. Right? Um, but I mean, the Internet obviously changes all that, too. Uh, so everybody's a lot more visible now than they used to be. Oh, well. Good and real, I think. Yeah. There have been authors who's Twitter, like, I love their book, and then I follow their Twitter account. Like, oh, I, I like you less now. I should have <laughs> read your book, and you would have remained a mystery to me. And it would have been great. <laughs> Whereas I know if Rob Dahl came to my house, like, first of all, he would leave immediately because it's, it's an interracial uh, family. Um, but even if he stayed past that, he's going to say some really offensive, terrible things. And I'm going to not like him probably by the time we're done. Right. But since that can never happen until the afterlife or, or whatever, <laughs> I can go on just imagining he was some nice cartoon version. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss for sure. Well, I, I'll tell you what. This has been good enough. Why don't we just call this the start of the show? I, oh, I, okay. That's fine. Yeah. All right. Cool. I didn't know I was waiting for, you know, like the, the this is blah, blah, blah. And uh, here's your host. So this is, uh, I'm very excited, esteemed audience. Hi. Uh, my guest is John David Anderson, who you probably know already. Uh, John David Anderson, tell esteemed audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I am a Hoosier, uh, just like you, Rob, um, which is, it's, it's actually cool. I actually like Indianapolis. It's like mini Chicago, right? Um, and only three hours from Chicago uh, if you need to go catch a Cubs game. Um, big Cubs fan myself. Uh, let's see. Uh, a few things about me. I'm addicted to chocolate, root beer, Diet Coke, uh, lots of things that aren't good for me. Uh, I'm also addicted to hiking, biking, uh, some things that are good for me. Reading books, obviously. Uh, that's a big one. Um, born and raised here. Uh, taught at the University of Illinois for seven years, um, where I taught literature and, you know, freshman composition, uh, which probably taught me more about writing than anything else that I've ever done. Uh, teaching, trying to teach somebody else how to write uh, is a big learning experience for you, right? Because uh, for the most part, I had no idea how I did what I did. Um, but then having to stop and explain it uh, and then, you know, sort of coach other people through that evolution did a lot for my own personal evolution as a writer. Um, I have two kids who are awesome and wonderful. They're 16 year old twins. Uh, I have a cat uh, named Smudge who really is just named Kitty because nobody can ever remember to call her by her real name. It's always just Kitty do this. Kitty come here. Kitty don't eat that. Right. 
uh, Kitty, don't pee there, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, she's awesome. Beautiful wife uh, that I've been married to for 24 years now. Um, the big two five, yeah, comes along uh, next summer. We got to figure out where we're going. Uh, hopefully, it'll be safe to travel by that point, you know, but we'll see. Um, what else? Uh, published 10 novels. Uh, I've got an 11th one coming out next month, and then I have a 12th one coming out next winter. Um, and they kind of run the gamut. I published books about superheroes and, uh, you know, bullying and fairies and uh, funerals, which are funerals, but a lot more fun. Um, and teachers who have stage four pancreatic cancer and you name it. Uh, and now science fiction and then a ghost story. So I'm kind of all over the board, but I always write for young readers between the ages of eight and 14. And I think the reason I do that is because, A, I feel like we need to tap into the most tragic moments in our lives. And that was definitely it, right? Uh, if I'm like, yeah, I want to get to some drama um, that's deep down in the core of me, then I kind of have to go to middle school. Um, but B, uh, I think in a lot of ways, they are really the most astute, awesome readers because they come to it with a child's imagination, right? Where like anything is possible, you know, the, the suspension of disbelief, full gear, um, you can get away with a lot of stuff. They have great senses of humor, right? Because they still love your potty jokes, but at the same time, they get your sophisticated Simpsons references, right? Uh, but even cooler than all that is like your 11, 12 year old reader is really starting to question some things. Um, some of the things that they've been taught, some of the things they've been led to believe. And that's where fiction, right? Where storytelling really can open up space for them to delve and explore uh, and, you know, try out new ideas um, and maybe, you know, con consider their identity and their place in the world. Uh, and so that's kind of why I fell in love with that particular genre. And I've been writing it ever since. So, all right. Lots of uh, follow up questions on, on that. But good news. We have time. Yeah, <laughs> so, let's start with the, the long list of, of all the, the different genres you've hit within middle grade. Do you have like a bingo card where you're crossing them off as you as you go or like a bucket list of how things you still want to tackle? Is that is there a genre you haven't hit yet that you're, you're you've got a candy craving for? I love that you put it that way, because I think that's actually it, um, especially for the last five or six years. When I've sat down, you know, uh, with the impetus, like time to produce another book, that's kind of the first thing I go to is what haven't I done yet? Um, and I think part of that is, you know, insecurity uh, and that I'm assuming I've screwed everything up so far. Uh, and so maybe if I try something new, this will be the thing uh, that I actually managed to pull off with a plum. Um, I don't think it's happened yet. Uh, but then part of it is also like, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get in a rut. I don't want to bore myself. And the easiest way for me to stay challenged and stay invested in a writing project is to play with a whole new set of conventions, right? Uh, and so, you know, you got science fiction. Well, all of a sudden, there's all, all new parameters that I've got to work with as an author. And there's this, you know, entire uh, canon of work um, that I get to build off and play off of. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. It's also very intimidating. Uh, especially with some genres over others. Um, but then there's also, for me, there's a balancing act in my own life between switching from speculative fiction and realistic fiction. Um, 
probably because my realistic fiction sells a lot better than my speculative fiction. Uh, so when I have to eat, uh, I write a realistic novel. Uh, and when I want to have some more fun, uh, I write, you know, science fiction or fantasy or superheroes or something like that. Um, but it's cool. Like I, I love going back and forth with those. I like experimenting, you know, with first person versus third person narration. Um, and so every time I sit down with a particular book, it's always with the investment to try something new for me as an author. It's never necessarily what I think the reader is going to want. Um, and then hopefully, you know, by the time I get done with it and it gets published, I turn it into something that the reader wants. But that was really never what I set out to do to begin with. Just a happy, uh, <laughs> happy accident along the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I do feel like there's enough readers out there that you'll find three or four. Uh, they're like, yeah, we really wanted a sports novel about Putt-Putt. Uh, we've been looking for this thing, right? Uh, and it's never come to fruition until right now. John David Anderson, thank you very much. Now giving me my Achilles action figure. <laughs> uh, that's the uh, last shot available now. Uh, and of course, the new book is Stowaway, which uh, was going to release uh, later in August, but I saw it's now August 3rd, I guess. So we'll have just come out, I think, when a steamed audience gets their, their hot little hands on this. Great. You know more about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that and, and I wondered, and maybe this will be something we, we cut out at the show, but I, I wondered uh, when something like that happens, because I, I think that it was maybe the 16th that was going to come out, because I reserved the 14th to line up uh, with your, your launch date, because uh, I told you I always give top priority to, to who's your authors. Esteemed audience knows I'm on a mission to spread a love of reading and literature across the world, but I'm focused on Indiana because I live here. <laughs> if, if, if I don't reach uh, Texas, well, that's too bad. I would love Texas to have a love of reading and literature, but but let's get Indiana first, and, and, and if there's time, Texas. Um, anyway, so I wondered, uh, August uh, 16th was the plan, now August 3rd, probably firm, going to come out. That's not that far off, but does that uh, kind of screw up the launch plans for you and things that you had had, had, had planned to do the, to promote the, the book when it comes out? Or are you flexible enough and used to it at this point? Uh, you know, different books obviously have different plans. Um, and uh, for this book, it was uh, a fairly, you know, uh, modest launch um, for me anyways there wasn't a whole lot of work that I had to do um, Harper's doing all the work on their end which is nice um, I get to you know have this lovely interview and uh, a couple more things are lined up um, but uh, I used to always have a launch party at Kids Inc um, which is a bookstore that I, I'm sure you know and love uh, here in Indianapolis and um, I don't think we're having it this year and we didn't have it last year obviously because of COVID and the pandemic. Um, and I'm still, you know, still just slightly nervous about uh, large gatherings in very small spaces. Um, so my hope is, you know. They have to wear a mask anymore and they have never been wrong the entire time or contradicted anything they had previously said. So I don't know why you would be nervous. Right, yeah, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you are a big name author uh, and your book tour was scheduled for the 16th and all of a sudden your plane ticket has been changed to the third, uh, then that's really going to put a crimp in your plans. Um, but for me, you know, I, I this is going to sound terrible. Uh, I wrote Stowaway two and a half, three years ago, you know, first draft. Um, then the revision process and the printing process and all that 
and so by this point, not only is that like four novels ago, you know, in terms of my like artistic process, um, but it's also four novels in a pandemic ago. Uh, and so I'm just playing catch up. Like, I'm like, who are the characters in that book again? Um, now, it's been useful because the book is actually part of a duology. Uh, and so there is an anticipated sequel uh, that I've been working on. So that's forced me to sort of get back into the groove with it. Um, but yeah, and, you know, in terms of launch plans, uh, I hope it gets to the readers that it needs to get to. I hope it certainly gets to the schools and the librarians. Uh, I think there is there is a little bit of a gap for good science fiction in middle grade. Um, I mean, there's great stuff out there for sure. Uh, but I, I think it's definitely not a genre that we've fully, you know, uh, exploited. Um, and so, and there's got to be, I fear there's got to be readership for it, right? People who have been weaned on new Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy and, you know, um, Maze Runner and, and all these wonderful other sort of sci-fi and, and dystopia things. Um, they're ready, you know, for more. Uh, so... Yeah, I I put my faith in readers, and I put my faith in um, the you know the power of books and literature. And uh, once it hits the shelf, I'm kind of like fly away, little bird, go find your home, right? Do the best you can. Uh, I have more birds to make. Fair enough. Yeah. Although I think that the sci-fi market, for anybody who's listening to this after August 3rd, has now been cornered uh, by Stowaway, by, by John David Anderson. It's over. You, you had a window. And Done, right? <laughs> <laughs> there will never be another science fiction book written until August 4th. I guarantee it, right? <laughs> so uh, for... Uh, um, well, so you're working on the sequel right now as you're promoting the first book? Did that did it work out that way? Yeah, it did work out that way. Uh, I have a book that's coming in between, um, which is called Riley's Ghost, uh, which is, um, surprise, spoiler alert, it's a ghost story. Um, kind of like a very middle grade version of you know Haunting of Hill House. Um, ghost story set in a middle school. Uh, but... Um, so that was a welcome break. And I do think as a writer, like that's incredibly important. Uh, I could not have written, you know, uh, the sequel to Stowaway directly after writing Stowaway without giving my brain uh, a breather. So, you know, that came in between and then back to this. And I'm also, you know, working on two or three other things. I don't know if you're the same way, Rob, whether you're like you hyper focus on one project and you just go at it until you get it done. Uh, or you dabble here, you dabble there, you know, two weeks on this, three weeks on that. Um, obviously, the publishing process in and of itself forces you to be able to shift gears right, on a moment's notice uh, when, you know, the revision of this comes in or time to proofread that or whatever. Uh, but that's kind of the way that I work best. Um, my attention span is not long enough uh, to stay in the science fiction world uh, for too long. Well, it's uh, while while you're while you're in the zone, while you're while you're working on the sequel, uh, what does the esteemed audience need to know about Stowaway so that they go to kidsinc.com and purchase their copy uh, right now? Uh, wow, what do you need do to know about it? Um, or do a search for Shirley Mullen, uh, but I'm ninety percent certain that it's it's kidsinc.com. <laughs> uh, it is. It is kidsinc.com for okay, sure. Uh, yeah, we're good there. Um, yeah, so what do you need to know about it? Uh, I can tell you that in the first chapter, I'll go ahead and give this away. 
Uh, our main character, whose name is Leo Fender, uh, he has a brother named Gareth. He has a dad who is an esteemed scientist. Um, this is post-first contact. So the Earth has already made contact with a particular alien species, uh, which has brought, brought them all kinds of wonderful new technology, which you need, right? If you're going to have a spacefaring adventure, uh, you need to be able to explain it somehow. And I'm like, aliens, right? Uh, that's always a good way to explain it. They know all kinds of stuff that we don't know. Um, so they bring it and kind of, you know, open our eyes and revolutionize our world, but at a cost. All these things, of course, come at a cost. Uh, and one of the things that they bring with them is a war, not with us, but with another um, alien force, right, that they've been in sort of mortal combat with now for eons and eons. Uh, and getting sucked up into that war then becomes one of humanity's um, sort of most unavoidable uh, pitfalls. Uh, it just, it's inevitable. Uh, and so the novel opens with that war sort of in full, full-fledged, um, and our participation in it, uh, and the ship that Leo's on gets, you know, torpedoed, and it's stranded there, and some pirates show up, and they're awesome. Uh, it's a band of these four characters. Uh, the pirate captain, of course, he's just everything that you'd expect, right? He's got his Grateful Dead t-shirts. Um, he, he refuses to let go of his humanity's past, um, and he's sarcastic, uh, and slick and Han Solo-ish, um, but at the same time sort of bumbling, um, in endearing and not so endearing ways. And his first mate, right, who barely puts up with him, um, Katarina Korea, who is, uh, equally awesome, right? Got a cool bionic arm for those of you who like, you know, uh, bionic arms. Um, how can you go wrong with one of those? Uh, and then you got Boo. Um, big, uh, hairy forearms, uh, sweet, pretty much wears his bathrobe everywhere, kind of not interested in most of the pirating gig, um, but he's sort of fallen in love with this little family and sort of sworn to protect them. Uh, and then you have, um, the one robot, right, that they keep around whose personality matrix, uh, has kind of gotten caught in her teenage years. Um, and so there's a lot of drama, uh, in her robotic life. Right. Uh, her name is Skits. Uh, and so Leo gets caught up, as the novel suggests, as a stowaway with these four pirates. Uh, and what ensues is an action packed, you know, uh, spaceship blasting uh, hyperspace traveling adventure where Leo has to convince these people who are not exactly on the most righteous side of the moral continuum uh, to help him save his family. Uh, and in the backdrop, there's environmental concerns and there's uh, questions about misuses of technology uh, and there's family tragedy and grief that Leo has to go through. Um, and there's just a lot of questions about stewardship, right? Uh, not just of our planet, uh, but of the entire universe. Like what happens when you get the power to make the universe a better place, uh, but you choose not to use it uh, in your own sort of selfish interests. Uh, and so there's some pretty big questions, I think, uh, that the novel at least introduces, even if it can't come up with some clear-cut answers to it, uh, all told from the point of view of Leo uh, and his very personal quest uh, to find his dad and his brother. So, um, 
esteemed audience who who's mo probably mostly listening although even though you're listening esteemed audience you can still go to youtube and hit subscribe why not um they, they can't see that you've got your star wars t-shirt on uh, and you had shown me your super sweet lego uh, millennium falcon a moment ago which is awesome and i'm deeply jealous of it um was star wars a, a big influence or were there some other uh, science fiction uh where did you draw your science fiction influences from sure i mean i think i drew them from lots of different places uh, Star Wars was huge. I don't know that Star Wars was necessarily huge in terms of, you know, plot and character so much as world building, right? I mean, I learned so much growing up from watching those movies about how just one scene uh, invokes a history uh, that the rest of the movie doesn't even get into. I mean, this was the cool thing about the cantina scene uh, in episode four, right, uh, is that you walk into that cantina and you see all these people basically for half a second. And at some point you realize each of them has their own backstory, right? Uh, each of them has their own investment in what's going on with the Empire and the Rebels and, and all this stuff. Each of them has their own wants and needs, maybe their own starship, maybe they got a bounty on their head. Uh, and the idea of that sort of rich galaxy um, has always stuck with me. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to do. With this book but at the same time like that's a galaxy far far away this is actually set in our galaxy right here right uh good old milky way um and so i drew on a lot of other things you know like star trek um and you know, stargate and um all kinds of things where sort of humanity humanity's stake as we know it becomes important um especially with the fragile planet that we're sitting on uh and so that was a concern uh and then you know i have pirates Guardians of the Galaxy, they're pretty cool. Uh, and I think as as viewers and readers have grown up, um, we, we have an appreciation for a little smart aleckness, right, uh, in our characters. And so I wanted this to be a band of misfits, right? Uh, the Goonies, I guess, um, of the interstellar scene. Uh, so, I mean, just so many influences. And those are just the movies, you know, uh, in terms of books, uh, I grew up on Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke and um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, there's definitely some of that humor in there. Um, I can't, I can't pull it off. I can't pull Douglas Adams off. I wouldn't even try. Uh, but there's some irreverence, right, uh, and some parody and some satire and some good stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, and that's one of the cool things about working in a genre um, is being able to tap into all of the things that you grew up with and that you loved uh, and say, all right, how do I put my own little twist on this? Like, how do I cobble together these bits and pieces, uh, these sort of character archetypes that I love uh, and these sort of ancient mythological stories, which really go back to uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, like we were talking about earlier, um, but, you know, set in outer space. And how do I tell my own version of that story and then make it relevant for our 21st century position that we're in? Uh, and science fiction is so cool about that because it always uses the future, either near or far, to reflect on the present and even the past. Um, and that sort of metaphorical relationship was one that I really enjoyed exploring. I'm sure there's a special on the History Channel about how the Iliad was actually written by ancient aliens. So. <laughs> 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 You mentioned the uh, Grateful Dead t-shirt that the, the pirate's wearing. 
Um, I assume that means you you have listened to at least some Grateful Dead while you're while you're doing the writing. Um, are you pro Grateful Dead, and so you uh, uh, empathize with the the pirate clinging to the past, or are you anti Grateful Dead, and that's why the pirate's wearing it, and and that makes you hate him more? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I am. I'm. I'm definitely. <laughs> I'm definitely pro hang on to the past uh, if the past is useful to us, right? Um, especially when it comes to the artistic past. Uh, and you know, he, he's got he's got Pearl Jam T-shirts. I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff. Um, he sort of runs the gamut. Um, I'm, I don't know if there's any boy bands that he appreciates, but I know they talk about them at one point. Uh, and like his prized possession uh, is you know David Bowie's Space Odyssey uh, on vinyl. Um, which turns out to be a key to getting some other people to help them. Uh, and so uh, for me, I think, you know, nostalgia is it's useful as a panacea as, as a way to, you know, sort of look back on the past and say we didn't screw everything up. Right. We at least did this. That was good, wasn't it? Uh, even though sometimes we look back on it, we thought it was good, but it turns out it's really not. Um, but I think for this character, Baz is his name, Bastion Black. Um, I think it's a way to not lose sight of his humanity um, in the great big old universe that he's in. There's this scene from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't remember which of the four books in the trilogy or five books in the trilogy it is, uh, but it's where Zaphod Beeblebrox goes into this like machine and it's going to show him just how important he is in the universe, right? Uh, and he steps inside this machine and it shows this like, like this most minuscule little dot, right? Uh, in terms of the like, great big huge void of the universe. Uh, and basically the point is you are nothing, right? Uh, you are a dust mite. Um, if, if that, and of course he steps out of it and he's like, oh, I didn't know I was that important. Right. Uh, so it's like, it's all mindset. Right. Um, and so I think for, for him, for Baz, it's like, you know, I'm going to hold on to the things that make us as a species really cool. And for me, for him, you know, that's Twinkies and old rock bands and, uh, really cool, you know, Jordan shoes and whatever. Um. Well, I do uh, find that for middle grade, maybe I'm deluding myself, um, but but I'll ask you, and if you agree, then I'll assume that it's, it's all good. Um, but <laughs> for the second Bradiker, there is a, uh, uh, a technique to build suspense that I borrowed, uh, repurposed from the second season of Breaking Bad. Uh, and obviously, it's 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 redone in completely different terms. It's 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 just a oh, I understand the principle of how that, that that I understand that storytelling technique. It could also work here. But as I was doing it, it occurred to me, you know what, the kids that that are the ideal target audience for this probably haven't seen Breaking Bad. So even if they even if an adult identified it, which they certainly will now that I'm on a podcast talking about it, uh, <laughs> I think I'd still be okay. Is that a valid viewpoint, you think, that you can repurpose some things from the past that younger readers won't be as familiar with? And so I think John David Anderson, he's brilliant. This is the, the first time I'm ever encountering this <laughs> when it would maybe it's a, a, a trope thing. Uh, I think so. I mean, for me, as trying to remember myself as a young reader, um, and I don't know if you were the same way, but I was invested in the story. Right. I was invested in character. 
Um, I didn't really think so much about craft. Uh, I wasn't astute enough. This is going to make my reader sound bad, um, but it's just about where your sort of focus lies, right? Uh, to ask my to step outside and ask myself, how is the author manipulating my emotions in this way, right? Um, or how did he make that cool narrative uh, move there uh, that allows me to all of a sudden become invested in this when before I wasn't? Um, I didn't get to that point until I was probably in high school, like late high school, uh, and that's when I started getting interested in those little moves that narratives make and the storytellers make. Up to that point, like, I just wanted to go to that world in my head. Um, and I just wanted to be that character. And sometimes when we sort of fall back on uh, a trope um, or an archetype or something like that, I think that makes it easier for readers to identify, right? Because they can say, I I've kind of seen this guy somewhere before, right? Uh, he's kind of Han Solo. He's kind of my dad, and he's kind of also my sarcastic uncle uh, that we only invite over to the house once a year, right? Uh, because we know he's going to say something wildly inappropriate. Um, and if I merge all those three together uh, and, you know, give him these other three interests, like, yeah, that's him. Like, I know him. Um, and so then you come with your own opinions and investment in that character. And then if that character does something, then that goes against all of the the tropes and the archetypes that you're used to uh then that can also be kind of a revelation or a breath of fresh air right uh because then you are surprised you're like oh that's really cool um so i like to use them i like to manipulate them uh that's actually how i got my start as a writer um my first book that actually sold anything was sidekicked uh which is was me sitting down in my chair saying why can we name 500 superheroes but we can only name two or three superhero sidekicks. Uh, like we have all these tropes and conventions of the superhero genre, and one of them is the sidekick. But at the same time, like that's sort of amorphous. Like unless you're talking about Robin, you don't really know what the conventions of a sidekick are. Uh, and so it's at the one time freeing, right? Uh, because it's a space that can be explored, but at the other time, it's not so intimidating because you have all these other rules that you can choose to play by if you want to, or you can choose to flip on their head um, to get that reaction out of your reader. Uh, so for example, in that book, you know, I took the main character, Drew. Uh, we know he's a superhero, he's a superhero sidekick, but I gave him an incredibly lame power, right? He has extraordinary senses. He can hear, smell, and see things coming from a mile away, but when they get to him, he's completely powerless to stop them, right? Uh, it's like that. Daredevil's main thing? Uh, well, yeah, except for Daredevil kind of kicks butt. Um, oh, like he's learned to, to overcompensate uh, or to compensate uh, for his blindness, right? Um, with extraordinary hearing. And, you know, if you were to stick Drew and Daredevil next to each other uh, and then Drew maybe was like, hey, this guy's coming. And Daredevil like, I saw him coming. Uh, he's like, are you going to do anything about it? Because um, it's got to be you. Because you know what Drew's going to do? He's going to play dead. Pretty much. And then Daredevil's going to whip out those little sticky things. I don't know what they're called, you know, and, and beat up the guy or whatnot. Hello, uh, Daredevil. I'm so glad you were here. This is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we make a good team. <laughs> I think I think that would be my role in a superhero universe. I could identify the danger. Oh, this looks this looks like trouble over here. I'm yeah. going to get dinner. When I come back, I expect <laughs> you to take care of it. <laughs> He's just a very astute, innocent bystander, right? 
<laughs> Not me. I'm the guy who gets crushed by the falling car. Um, hopefully saved by Spider-Man's web at the last second. But if not, you know, it was a good life. Well, maybe at least motivate him to be really angry and, and, and punch extra hard. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has a purpose. Life, life well lived, a sacrifice that's worthy. <laughs> <laughs> the unsung heroes of this situation. Peter Parker's eyes after I died, well, you'd say it was all worth it. <laughs> so, the, uh, a duology, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, because did you plan this originally as, as two books, or did you plan a second book? How far out do you, do you plot and plan when you do a story? So I actually planned it as a trilogy. Um, and when I say planned, I mean uh, for five minutes loosely imagined that it could be such a thing. Uh, there, there was no outline. There was, there was nothing like that. There was just, wow, I've spent a lot of time creating this world and these characters. And I love them. Um, and there's a lot at stake here. Uh, Galaxy-wide, Earth-wide, family-wide, right? Um, personal evolution-wide. Uh, and so I did not see myself being able to put that all up in one book. But I also didn't know how many books it would take. Uh, and so when I presented it to my publisher and my editor, uh, it was agreed. Yeah, there's there's no way that this can be one book now for the middle grade sphere, right? Unless it's going to be 700 pages. Uh, and I don't have the kind of clout to pull that off. Um, so then the question is... Well, who could pull that off, you think? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are a couple people who have written books that long for middle graders and gotten away with it. Uh, but they have their own theme parks now. Uh, anyways, uh, the point being, like, I... I knew it was going to be more than one, and so I sort of needed my editor to just give me a number and say, this is what we think it should be. Uh, can you work with that? Um, and so, you know, you get those sort of parameters and you work within those parameters. Could it have been a trilogy? Maybe. Could it have been, you know, 10 books? No, <laughs> uh, because there's no way that I could have done that uh, without going crazy. Um, but this is actually my very first ever sequel that I've written uh and i have to say that the experience has been so far and i'm still in the middle of it uh it's been very challenging and it's been rewarding artistically and i don't know that i'll ever do it again um because i'm learning about myself as a writer that i very much am invested in getting a character to a certain place uh and being content with them being there um and that doesn't mean that they don't have a rich future beyond that place that I took them to. It just means that it's not my job at that point to imagine that future for them. I mean, the reader can do it. Uh, go write some fan fiction, whatever it is. Uh, and I've always gotten to that place with the book until I got to Stowaway. And it was immensely unsatisfying. And then it created tons of pressure for me to make it satisfying in the sequel, right? So that I get that same feeling uh, that I do, that sort of Christmas present feeling when you're like, yes, that's where it's supposed to end up. Uh, and we'll see if it gets there. You know, I want it to get there, obviously. Um, but the fact that it takes two books to get that uh, emotional rush for me as an author over the span of, you know, three or four years, as opposed to one book over the span of a year and a half, um, I'll probably go back to the, the immediate gratification um, of being content and happy with my stories and wrapping them all up. 
I say that to you, of course, you have a series. Uh, so um, you probably feel very differently about this. Uh, no, it gets harder every time, uh, and I hate myself a little more for having uh, a set it up as a series as opposed to just finishing it and being able to to move on. Uh, I mean, here we are. Um, well, I would not. I would think when you're doing contracts, if 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 they'll say, "Hey, we want ten books," you like, and you'll pay ten contract rates. Well, I guess I'm coming up with ten stories. Here we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, when you're coming back, you know, and then enough time has passed. I mean. You're post-pandemic uh, after this. You're you're a different person. I mean, everybody's a different person a couple of years later. But after uh, the last uh, year and a half, uh, the, the harrowing experiences we've all had, I think all of us are, are a little bit more of a different person than we might be during that, that same time frame otherwise. Are you finding it difficult to go back and pick up where you left off and understand what you laid down? Are you hating past you? And like, hey, if you know, if you'd set something up else up in the first book, I that sure would have helped me out here. <laughs> uh, that last part, definitely. Um, you know, in the retrospect and hindsight being, you know, uh, 2020, um, there are probably things that uh, I could have incorporated. I mean, I think we could probably both go on and on for uh, another two hours about how the pandemic has shifted not only our approach to art, um, but just our our understanding of its place in the world and its value to young readers and even what our young readers look like at this point. Um, yeah, I experienced quite a bit of tragedy over the last two years, lost both of my parents um, one year, one right after another. Uh, and so for me, uh, it has been a constant pinballing between wanting to escape, uh, which I think a lot of readers probably appreciate, uh, and wanting to just grab that thing, um, all that angst and all that anger and all that grief and all that remorse um, by the ears and just throttle it. Uh, and to do that through my writing. Um, and so I do feel like a lot of the past couple of years, artistically for me, has been a coping mechanism, as I'm sure it has for you and lots of other people dealing with all the stuff that we've been dealing with. Uh, and it's been you know, very personal at times. And I don't think of Stowaway and its sequel as that kind of book, right? Um, it is definitely more a product of my brain and my imagination than of my heart. Um, whereas the book that comes out uh, this winter called Riley's Ghost is a lot more, I think, akin to the emotions or in touch with the emotions that I was experiencing over the past two years. Um, and again, it's just like work on this a little bit, get away, uh, go to the galaxy um, you know, out there uh, and then come right back home uh, and, and face the demons head on. Um, yeah. Well, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you this. <laughs> I, this might be another one. We'll, we'll we'll cut out. Maybe we'll cut the whole interview. Who knows what'll happen? <laughs> Is it really that bad? Am I doing that bad? God. <laughs> no, you're doing fantastic. I'm just asking <laughs> questions that are slightly uh, more personal. Listen to me. Like if your if your release date changes, does that bother you? Should we include your editor and your publicist and your agent? Should they all hear this? <laughs> 
make sure we let them know. Wonderful questions like that. Um, but uh, here, here's uh, here, here's another one a little bit. If uh, uh, Stowaway comes out, it's a huge success. The publisher comes back and says, we should have done the Tim Bill contract the first time. Let's do it now. And then Riley's Ghost comes out and some, some readers absolutely love it, but it's not quite as successful. Would you be happy going toward the more successful story that maybe has your intellect and it has your creativity, but not necessarily your heart. Would that be satisfying for you, knowing that you're going to reach maybe potentially more readers? Or would you continue to want to write at least one uh, emotional story that's, even if you never publish it, just, just a story for your heart every year? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I should tell you, Rob, that I am really fortunate uh, to have the publisher and the editor I do um, with Walden Palm Press, which is um, a smaller uh, publisher within HarperCollins, uh, and Jordan Brown is my editor. And they kind of give me free reign, you know, for the most part, to follow my head or my heart, whichever one I want to do. Um, I, I, I'm always going to write what I feel like writing whether I think it's going to get published or not. I actually write two novels a year. That's a bare minimum. Sometimes it's three. Uh, only one of them ever gets published. I know that going in. It doesn't bother me. Um, it's not for me. I, I publish hopefully enough that I can put food on the table, that I can keep doing it, that I can call it a career. Um, but I write enough that I can feel artistically satisfied, that I can feel like I'm improving at my craft, that I can feel like I'm at least staying on this positive side of grief uh, and, you know, uh, all the terrible things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if it comes down to write this because it would make us more money or write this because it's what you want to write, I'm hopefully always going to choose what I want to write. Um, now, it kind of depends on how much money we're talking about. The movie deal is in the works. For Miss Pixie's first day, the prequel. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How soon am I getting a copy of that on my desk? <laughs> I know. Spielberg's, Spielberg's on the phone, right? Uh, we've already sold the movie rights to this un, as yet unimagined novel. Um, then, yeah, maybe. Maybe I'll consider it. But uh, thankfully, I'm not in that position where uh, anything I've written... Um, <laughs> I say thankfully. That sounds so terrible. Uh, right there, Britain has taken off so much that it's sort of dominated the course that my writing career has to take. Um, you know, I do say that my realistic fiction sells better than my speculative fiction. And so there's always sort of that underlying pressure um, to keep it mixed up. Like, I don't think I could ever, like, pick one genre uh, and go down it um, because of that. Because I think my readers kind of expect maybe now not to expect anything, if that makes any sense. Like, uh, they're at the point now where they're like, you know, John, we don't know what's coming next, and we like it. Um, and I'm like, I like it too. I love not knowing what's going to come next. I love being able to explore and try new things and go to dark corners uh, and, and dust them out um, and see what's hidden there. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but, you know, you're a writer, I'm a writer. That means we both know one thing for sure, and that is we're going to do it no matter what. Uh, we'll do it if we're poor. We'll do it if we're rich. We'll probably do it till the day we die uh, or lose our minds. I'm guessing the second one's going to come first <laughs> before the first one. 
<laughs> probably happened sometime early on, which is why we're still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> The crazy people don't know they're crazy. They're walking around <laughs> wondering why they're the only one that's sane. <laughs> yeah, I uh, always make the, the joke that's not a joke that if I was going to quit, uh, there have been so many better opportunities along the way to have quit at, at this point <laughs> and, and, and didn't take any of them. Uh, there was a moment during this 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 past uh, this pandemic where I thought, well, you know, we're talking, we won't spend two hours on it, but uh, I am sorry uh, to hear about your parents, um, and, and I'm sure there's all other uh, uh, grief and, and, and pain and uh, suffering that's, that's going to last us forever. I will never again not have at least one giant thing and a half a giant thing of toilet paper in my home probably as, as long as I live. Um, <laughs> that's just that I won't feel safe. I, I won't be able to sleep with, without it. Um, where was I going with all that? Oh, uh, talking uh, just a, a, about the the experience of the pandemic. I'm curious to know: Were you able to write through that? Did that throw you off your game for a while? Did it? I, there was a moment where I thought, "How important is this in the grand scheme of things?" This me sitting down and like, "Hey, honey, I, I realize you want to continue talking about your pain, but I have it in my rear account." Uh, today. So let's put that on hold. Let me make sure I, I, I check in on these fictional characters, um, which was important. It, it kept me sane. Um, were you able to, to proceed, not quite business as usual, but to write pretty much more or less? Or did you have a period of nothing's coming out and I'm just reading the news all day? Or uh, I mean, I think for me, it was definitely a uh, therapeutic act. Um, and so while there might have been Definitely times where I questioned the value of what I was producing uh, in terms of the outside world. Like, do people really want another John David Anderson book? Like, is it going to do them any good? Or do they have, you know, 50 other things that are definitely more important uh, for them to do uh, than sit down and read a middle grade novel? Um, especially the young readers that I'm writing to who are going through, you know, their version of heck uh, right now. Uh, but again, for me, as you say it was for you, check on these fictional characters, uh, it was necessary. And I don't think my writing production went down at all, although it shifted. Like I started writing poetry um, as, you know, uh, a way to not only get my brain um, still processing language uh, and thinking about craft and how words can go together and uh, but also just as a way to condense feelings and emotions um, into something that I can look at just on one single page right um, and you know four stanzas and then I'm done I'm out uh, and so there was a lot of that um, I think I think the quality of my writing went down a little bit as a result of, of the pandemic. Um, but I think that's more just a matter of focus and, you know, constant distraction um, than anything else. You know, I, I had more trouble getting in the zone. Uh, and there, there are times pre-pandemic where I could sit at my desk and literally write for 10 hours straight. Um, like, wouldn't even get up to uh, eat. Um, but it was just sort of this hyper-focused uh, artistic explosion. And I don't know I've had that uh, one single time in the last three years. Um, but 
you know, I don't, I don't know what to, to attribute that to or blame that on um, news cycle or um, just, you know, weight of the world or, or whatnot. Uh, but I think that's, I think most of the artists, most of the writers that I've talked to over the past two years uh, have said that it's been definitely more of a struggle. Um, but at the same time, I feel like most of them have said it's also renewed their sense of purpose uh, because, you know, with increased environmental concerns and social unrest uh, and political shenanigans, uh, not to mention, you know, the need for humanity to actually come together um, to deal with some stuff, right, uh, that's sitting on their on their plate, uh, has really prompted uh, a deeper understanding of the value that literature and you know any artistic enterprise can can fill, right? Um, especially for our young people who are looking to engage in the world and are very critical thinkers um, and are becoming more active and politically minded uh, and really have this world in their hands. And so when I stop and take the long view of it, and I'm not thinking about my own personal life and what I've got to do today and, and whatnot, uh, I, I feel actually more optimistic uh, and a, a greater sense that what we do you know, especially writing books for young readers, uh, has immense value to open up their eyes, to keep them curious, to make them question things, um, but also to give them that escape that they need sometimes uh, to get away from the pressing um, weight of the world uh, that is slowly descending upon their upon their shoulders. Uh -huh. Uh, you had said something, you, you know a writer that I know, uh, so thinking of, uh, of writers and their reactions to the pandemic, and I think most people have been taken back a little bit. I know a, a couple of good friends who I never thought would quit writing who appear to have just done that, although I'm always skeptical, because there were, again, there were plenty of great opportunities for you to quit when it when it made even more sense and you never did, uh, so I, I don't necessarily know that you'll be back, um, but you know Maurice Broaddus, of course. Um, and that guy, man, don't be friends with that guy during a pandemic if you want to feel good about your writing, because he was like the Terminator, just relentless. Just every every day he's on his porch, just typing away, writing novellas, short stories, that you name it. <laughs> that guy's producing a lifetime's worth of work during the during the pandemic, which I think is probably in retrospect the better way to have reacted and i wish i had whatever switches in marisa's brain and in, in, in my mind because oh yeah that uh that was one thing that uh when you know not, not to dwell on this forever but when the insurrection happened but didn't necessarily mark the end probably although we'll we'll see uh, i think that i don't i think it's a little bit early to count that as completely resolved yet but um Red Dawn from within didn't quite happen that we know of. So all right, well, I worried a whole lot right up to that moment. And then at the last moment, the, the, the most improbable thing possible happened. And that was the Eugene Goodman uh, pushing the first insurrectionist and getting like a like a gang of Looney Tune characters to follow me this away. And you see that and it's so improbable and 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 so uh, crazy. Like if that was in a book, you'd never buy that as the ending. That's nuts. Uh, and I see that like, this was an episode of Quantum Leap. That's who Dr. Sam Beckett was this week. Get out of here. That doesn't happen in real life, but it, it did happen. Uh, and you see that and you're like, okay, well, I worried nonstop. And then this happened and it was fine. 
like, okay, well, all of my worrying did not add value to my life. And mm-hmm. in the end, I don't think there's anything I could take away from that. I wish I had been more Maurice Broaddus during that time. As, as let's be frank, we, we all wish all the time. Um, <laughs> but I, I wish I had kept my head down and just kept writing a little bit more. And next pandemic, next next violent uprising uh, uh, I'm going to keep that in mind and and maybe keep my head my nose to the grindstone a little bit I mean we all we all process it differently right Uh, and I think the assumption that we make is that as writers maybe we have an outlet that other people don't have um, because we do have these magnificent worlds that we can escape to um, but I mean, I guess the question would be, you know, all those pages and uh, novellas and short stories um, that Maurice was producing, right? Like, uh, it's impossible for us, for you or me or anybody else, to really truly gauge the value that that had for him, right? Um, and so, you know, if you only produce one short story in a year, but that short story helped you make sense of something terrible that happened in your life or in the world around you um then that was a valuable piece of art right that was not a waste of time uh and maybe there was a lot of worry that was a waste of time but the worry that helped produce that one piece of art that was great right uh and you know i'm being reductive here um but i i really think it's impossible to separate you know, the, the thing that we do for a living, um, the the process that we engage in from all the other stuff that is happening around us. Uh, so that even if you're not writing about insurrectionists, right, uh, or you're not writing about, you know, uh, institutional racism, I think that stuff finds its way into your books regardless, one way or another. Um, or at least your angst and your uh, fears and your desires and your hopes for humanity and all those things find their way into the book, you know, get channeled somehow, uh, metaphorically in all these other ways. I always, um, there's a quote, uh, and I'm trying to remember who said it. Um, I think it was Willa Cather who said, everything a writer needs, they know by the age of 15. Um, and, you know, I go to schools and I talk to kids about writing and I tell them that and I ask them what they think that means and we get a lot of different answers. Um, but what I think it means is that by the age of 15, you know what fear is, you know what love is, you know what loss is. Um, you may not have experienced these things directly, intensely, but you're aware of them. Uh, and it's those sort of emotional valences that seep into our work or any anyone's work um and so i think one of the things that's going to happen and we'll see if i'm right is that over the next few years there's gonna be some seriously charged stuff right uh that artists have been producing because they've been channeling uh all those emotions that they've experienced for the past two years and maybe they weren't able to write about them at the time but they're in there right uh they get stored in the psyche and then the psyche does its magic and works it into narrative and tries to make sense of it with story. Uh, and then, you know, those of us who have the pen or the paper or the ink or the brush or the, uh, you name it, the Lego, um, <laughs> we find a way to put those pieces together and present it to the world. Um, and so, I mean, that's, 
Maurice was able to do that at the time. Pretty remarkable. Uh, that just means the rest of us are playing catch up. Uh, and, you know, we'll be doing it too. And uh, authors that, you know, may have quit um, publishing, I don't know that they will have quit imagining. I don't know that they will have quit using narrative to make meaning of their world. Uh, I really doubt that they will have quit telling stories uh, if it's, you know, to their family or their kids or their friends uh, or in their head. Um, you, you'll, you'll never stop using that tool, right, the tool of storytelling uh, to give value to the experiences that you're going through um, and to help you make sense of them. Uh, and I think as, as writers, um, not only do we do that for ourselves, but especially we teach you know, the next generation how to do that as well. Like, what are the narratives that you're writing in your own life that are helping you to make sense of the universe? I don't know. I don't know. You feel this way. I, feel this way. Um, I, I find uh, myself a little bit terrified when I'm writing. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll go back and I'll read what I've written. And I'll say, oh, that thing that was in my life that I thought I was leaving completely separate from this story has wormed its way in. And now my vulnerability is there on the page. And that was not intended. That's not cool. Uh, but I realize that's part of the process. It just bugs me personally. Okay. I don't know. Does that, does that bug you or does that gratify you that that's been, been preserved? Um, yeah, I kind of feel differently than you do about that. Uh, whenever that happens, if I'm if I'm at least astute enough to recognize it, which I'm probably not, um, but you know, on the rare occasions where I'm like, oh yeah, that's definitely where that's coming from, uh, then I think it, it enriches the experience somehow um, because at least I know I can speak with some degree of emotional authenticity to this, um, and uh, you know, in some ways. Uh, in a lot of ways, I've had an incredibly blessed life. Uh, and so when it comes down to creating drama and creating conflict, uh, a lot of that is manufactured, right? A lot of that is conflict and drama that I read about and I saw on TV and whatnot. Uh, it's not something that I've personally experienced. Uh, I've never been stowed away aboard uh, a, a space-varying vessel that has just been attacked by aliens, right? Um, it just hasn't happened yet, right? It could. Uh, there's still time. Um, but, you know, I do know what it's like to be uh, suddenly separated from family. Uh, and so when I see my sort of heart spilling out onto the page in that way uh, and my insecurities and my vulnerabilities coming through, um, my hope is that that just allows me to connect to the reader even more strongly. Um, and it doesn't bother me. As long as I don't use real people's names, right? Then I'm okay. Isn't that the rule? I mean, if you're slick about it, which you haven't been caught <laughs> thus far, so I guess you See, must. Nobody knows. Nobody <laughs> knows. <laughs> when I read about Ralph, Ralph the Obnoxious Podcaster, I'll try not to take it personally. I say, oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> um, here's a problem uh, that I had that's, that's maybe a little bit imaginary that I think I wanted to ask you uh, regarding Stowaway, because that's the story uh, hinging a little bit on first contact. 
Uh, and the big, I, I think the big story uh, from 2020 is not going to be the political stuff. It's not going to be COVID. It's going to be that we confirm, the Pentagon confirms flying saucers. That's a real deal. In the grand scheme of humanity, plagues come and go. What's this now about alien life being real? Go back, go back a little bit. <laughs> we, we need to explore that a little more. Does that concern you now, writing writing your sequel, that uh, we're going to have something very real to compare all this sci-fi to potentially here in the in the near future? Um, you say potentially. I'm not. I'm still not convinced um, what it is and what it's not. There's so much junk. Uh, floating out there that we've created um, that, you know, uh, I just, I guess I have more respect for advanced (laughs) intelligent alien life um, that uh, if if, if they were going to come to us, um, I don't know. I feel like they wouldn't be so coy about it. Uh, I feel like they'd just be like in our face, like, here's the deal. Uh, Take it or leave it. Um, You know, do we want to blow up your planet or not? Uh, give us one good reason why we shouldn't. Um, and I think we would struggle, right, to come, <laughs> up, to come up with a good one that we could all agree on anyways. Um, uh, like, that could be humanity's greatest challenge. Uh, you know, it's funny that you asked this because it wasn't something that I actually gave it a whole lot of thought until I started writing that novel um, and doing just a, a little bit of research, you know, because it's it's – takes place in the galaxy. And so, you know, I had to get a sense of the great span of things um, and, you know, read a lot about this, you know, the Big Bang and whatnot and realized that I don't know enough about physics to explain anything, you know, in any kind of depth. Um, So aliens, right? Uh, Alien magic, whatever it is. Um, But one of the things it did for me is it made me realize I am 99.99% sure that there is life out there besides us, right, that is completely intelligent, um, that has access to vast technologies, right, that we probably can't even imagine yet. And I am also 99.99% sure that they have little to no interest in us, right? Um, Maybe a passing scientific curiosity, right? Um, But, you know, the odds of us finding them or them finding us and us creating, you know, uh, a new perfect uh, universal order uh, or somehow obliterating each other um, out of existence. I just don't see it happening, at least not in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime. Um, But if that point zero zero one, maybe getting my numbers mixed up, uh, percent chance that that does happen, uh, and somebody finds somebody, uh, then I think we better come up with that one reason real quick. <laughs> like what it might be. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and Batman. Batman maybe. Like the aliens uh, down, like, I don't know about all this war you guys got going on. Yeah, 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 but sit down. Batman. Watch this Batman movie. It's it's the Keaton Batman. None of this newfangled now. The, the, the pure mainstream. The, the let me give you let me give you some Burton. Then maybe we'll do the Dark Knight. And like, Ooh, we we like humanity. It's cool. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're well, maybe if you combine that with mine, which was uh, deep dish pizza, uh, then and then that that could convince them. But you know, art is universal. Uh, pizza, I don't know that it is. Uh, aliens could have dietary restrictions that we're not aware of. Um, so. 
I think that it's entirely probable that uh, what's 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 being discovered is not aliens flying around, but just alien, whatever the alien equivalent of a drone is. Just so that we're not, they're not that interested in us. That they've just got a bunch of drones going out all over the universe and like, yeah, look at that. There's some primitive life down there. Oh, they've got nukes. So that's let's see how this plays out. That's that's my that this will be the subject of a term paper for at least one alien grad student. Yeah, <laughs> the aliens are more concerned about the the rest of the universe. <laughs> I could totally see them like going to a conference uh, and like putting up their PowerPoint presentation like humans, right? Uh, <laughs> what you need to know, uh, bullet point, <laughs> like six things, uh, and then he's out. Uh, just done. Um, yeah, I mean, I I like the idea that they are watching us, waiting to see how it plays out, right? Because um, I think we're kind of doing the same thing, and I think that may be one of our downfalls, uh, is that we're really good at just sitting back and saying, let's see how this plays out. Um, and uh, by the time they actually decide that there's something on this planet worth uh, having or exploring or taking an interest in, uh, we may have completely trashed it beyond all recognition. Uh, it's really hard to tell, uh, and they may know that. Um, but at the same token, maybe they'll come save us from ourselves. That would be nice. That would be wonderful. We, we don't, we don't see it a lot. Unsatisfying as storytellers for a direction. Yeah, say, you don't see sure. that story but, very often. <laughs> but since it's us, I think we, we, we can allow it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't have to be satisfying. Just don't let us all die. <laughs> please, please, sir. Uh, save my planet. Well, Steve Audience knows I, I have to ask, since, since I ask everybody, um, I'm assuming that you have not ever seen a flying saucer. Have you ever seen a ghost? Uh, I have not seen either, um, to the best of my knowledge. Um, my parents sort of believed a little bit in the supernatural, uh, and so they would tell me stories of uh, Ouija boards going crazy, you know, as teenagers, um, and bumps in the night, and those kinds of things. Um, but I think as a writer, uh, especially as somebody who was reading Stephen King at the age of 11, stealing my father's books out of the bathroom, right, and taking them back to my bedroom and reading them at midnight um, under the covers with a, with a flashlight, uh, I, I, I am not going to say no to anything, right? Um, I think the possibilities are out there. Uh, and while uh, there are things that we don't necessarily see with our eyes, um, there are things that we feel in our heart. And uh, I don't know if we're talking about ghosts or specters or souls or whatever it is, uh, but I do, there are moments when I feel like there are people I love that are no longer with us um, that are still nearby somehow, right? Uh, that even if they're not watching over us, uh, there's a fragment or a remnant. Um, there's something supernatural that's been left behind. Um, whether that guides us or provides us solace um, or just reminds us of the love that we felt for them, uh, I'm not sure what its function is, um, but I, I sometimes get that feeling. Uh, and those are the kinds of ghosts that I like.
So I'm trying to think what question to follow that up with that, that won't seem trite. But now that I've said that, uh, it's, it's fair game. I've already said the trite thing. We're, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I did have some uh, quotes from you that I, I wanted to make sure I asked you about. And actually, I had some uh, questions. You know, I had some questions for you about uh, uh, Miss Bixby's uh, last day. Because uh, I, I had the the pleasure of enjoying that here on audiobook uh, in, in preparation. And were you were you teaching when that book came out? I was not. Okay. Uh, but my wife was teaching, and my mother was teaching, uh, and um, half of our friends were teachers. Uh, so it's not as if I wasn't part of the crowd, right? Um, at least by association. Uh, and. That question because you you know you start off with the classifications of the teachers are are zombies dungeon masters Spielberg's noobs good ones and I'm remembering my own experience as teachers plus my my time in schools uh, since uh, having seen that yes that's absolutely uh, who's who's doing the classes but should you say that out loud before you go to school visits <laughs> all of those teachers has that created uh, awkward situations or have teachers come up to you and said yes man you nailed it you said everything you needed that needed to be said yeah, no, it's definitely the second one. Uh, I think teachers actually really appreciate that passage. Um, and I always sort of make it the point to to say that, you know, we're, we're dabbling in caricature here. Um, and that, you know, uh, you only have one of these probably through your entire um, career uh, uh, as a student. You're only going to have one true-fledged dungeon master, but you're going to remember that guy, right, or a or, uh, girl. Um, or you, you'll only have um, one necessarily complete calf addict, right? Everybody will come in with their Starbucks, but there's going to be one who's really just going to be jumping and jittery uh, the whole day long. Um, and my hope is, of course, that you get more than one Miss Bixby, right? Uh, one of the good ones. Um, but sometimes you only get one of those too, you know, uh, and everyone else um, maybe doesn't fall as neatly into like pre prescribed seven categories. Uh, I know as a teacher at the University of Illinois, I definitely had my Spielberg days, right? Uh, where I'd be like, we're just going to do this today because it doesn't require any effort from me. Um, and all the effort is you. And I know that you're paying you know, a godly amount of money for your tuition. But, you know, just give me give me this one afternoon, please. Uh, so, yeah, no, they, they love it. Um, and I've gotten you know a great response from educators from that book, uh, because I think one of the things that that book does do well is it just shows how far reaching the impact of our teachers our teachers have on us right that it extends so far beyond the classroom uh, and i know we always say that um, but it's it's hard to appreciate um, and especially if you think about everything that teachers have had to go through for the last two years to reach beyond the classroom that you know they couldn't actually be in um, to connect with students and try to get them motivated to learn uh, and to love their subject matter, right? Uh, and to stay engaged and, and socially active and uh, make them aware. Like, that's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing job and I have the utmost respect for them. Um, and so that's one of the things that I set out with that particular book. I mean, I set out to do a lot of things with that book. Uh, but one thing is to say, you know, the experience that a good teacher can have, like the impact a good teacher can have on your life, you are not gonna recognize that. Uh, in its full intensity until five, 10, maybe 20 years down the road. Uh, and then you're gonna look back and you're like, wow, right? 
Um, that was amazing. Well, in all fairness, uh, any teacher that is uh, reading middle grade books, wants to have an author come and talk to their students, is definitely in the Miss Bixby category already. They are the good ones. Um, and, and if somebody's reading it that's a dungeon master, they think they're the Miss Bixby. They don't know. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> they're, they're laughing at all those other poor teachers. <laughs> I also uh, I wondered, um, well, um, I was going to ask about, about the cootie opening uh, in, in like of the pandemic. It opens up and, and you know, they've got the, the full protective gear on to prevent from cooties. And I'm reading, oh, man, that's a that's a different read now, I'm sure, than when it was uh, when it was written and what it was intended. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced that same thing, uh, but especially over the, the first year, um, 2020, I, I actually had to ask my editor. I'm like, what do we do at this point? Uh, we have novels that are, you know, slated to come out that don't address this at all, like uh, set modern day um, realistic fiction. Um, but we wrote them two years ago, right? And we've been in the process of editing them. Uh, so nobody's wearing a mask, right? Uh, everybody's still in school. And then what do we do two years from now uh, when we go back to reflect on this time? Like, um, do we imagine an alternative reality uh, where COVID-19 didn't exist? Uh, and then the, to get at what you're getting at, and then how does this change um, the stuff that we've already written? Yeah, looking back on that first chapter, it's incredibly startling. And I, I wouldn't have written it that way. Um, but five years from now, uh, is it going to carry the same valence? Like 10 years from now, if it's even still in print, right? Uh, will it matter? It was and, enjoyable. It didn't stop that. It was just a, a momentary of, oh, but it's not an obvious different than if you see, like, you know, people just open mouth kissing on a, on a TV show uh, from back in the day. Oh, you, you, you shouldn't do that. And, and tell you, <laughs> you tell you see their vaccination card and you've shown them theirs. Right. There, there are process. There's a steps to take before you get to that. <laughs> so that's all. <laughs> I mean, and that also speaks to one of the things that uh, as an artist, I'm sure you think about, too, uh, which is balancing what we could possibly be considered to be universal appeal or universal truth, right? Something that's going to stand the test of time uh, with addressing like a very current need. Um, and, you know, I have a book called Posted, which is all about the power of language and it's about friendships falling apart and it's about, um, you know, sort of uh, social angst and social strata and bullying and all that stuff. Um, and I feel like when I wrote that book at the time, and probably still a little bit now, it it reads well, right? It carries weight, um, and I think readers react to it uh, the way that I wanted them to. Ten years down the road, though, I don't know. Like I don't know if it's going to carry that same weight um, or have those same have that same meaningful impact um, because I feel like it was a product of its time. I was revising that book when the presidential primaries uh, were underway for the 2016 election. Um, and so I'm sitting there watching debates and the people who are vying for the position of what some consider to be the most powerful person in the world were calling each other names, right? Um, and I was thinking to myself, these are our role models, right? Uh, these are the people our kids are going to look up to. 
for how they should use language and how they should use words. Um, and that's why this novel is important, right? Uh, and I don't always set out with a novel to be like, all right, this novel is going to have a message. Um, you know, this novel is going to teach you something, gosh darn it. Um, but with that book, I did, right? Uh, and I do wonder sometimes if uh, that message, the messages that we choose to include in our books are historically, are context specific, or if somehow they will manage to morph and have value for generations of readers to come. But then I look at the books that I loved as a kid, and I would say 70, 80% of them I go back to, and they're just as meaningful to me now, if not more, than they were when I was a kid. Um, some things probably lose their luster, right? Uh, but the power of fiction, the power of storytelling, is that we can tell stories um, that everybody can connect to on some level, I hope. Um, at least that's the goal. I mean, Tales from a Fourth Grade, nothing is going to continue to outsell both of us forever in perpetuity. <laughs> it, will, it will never not be. <laughs> I'm not jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, this uh, actually this 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 last year and a half had finally convinced me to quit with the messages. Like, uh, people don't listen. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's tell the story. Let's have fun. If you present people with scientific data that you will die, you will kill your loved ones, wear a mask, socially distance, they go, no. But, all right, man, what am I, what is the middle grade ninja going to say in the face of that? <laughs> you've, you've made your choice. I, I can't help you. Let's just, let's tell a fun story and hopefully I'll, I'll reach a few people here and there and that's about all I'm going to aspire to. <laughs> yeah. But don't you feel like when you picture that, a uh, ten-year-old reader or that twelve-year-old reader, um, don't you just picture this? I do. Uh, this like huge spongy brain, right, uh, with all this potential and and capability, um, just like I don't know, with tendrils, right, of uh, curiosity and creativity just shooting out, uh, grasping onto whatever they can, um, and you think to yourself. There is still time, right? Uh, uh, the, you can be you can be brought back to the light side. I know the emperor hasn't driven it from you fully, right? Uh, and so I think that's one of the advantages of writing uh, for middle grade um, and for younger audiences is that I don't get disillusioned with that aspect of it. Uh, I always feel like there is an openness and a readiness in my readers to at least go on the journey. Now, when they get to the end of the journey, if I leave them a little kernel of wisdom, right, if there's a little something tucked inside uh, the fortune cookie and they read it and they're like, eh, no, not buying it. Um, that's fine. That's cool. They have their reasons. As long as they have reasons. As long as they went on the journey. As long as they actually gave me, you know, the time uh, and, you know, the mental energy to think about it at least. Uh, then that was the start of a conversation. Right. Uh, between us. Um, now, if I had to write for adults. Which I know you also do, uh, then I, I think I would probably have a very different viewpoint on it. Well, those uh, they're, they're, I mean, not all adults are lost causes. Some some people do see the light. Um, but I remember, you know, who I was uh, fifth, sixth grade. Uh, when I would have been the ideal audience for some of these books versus who I became versus who I grew up to be. Very different. 
And there were some ideas that flew in the face of uh, my, I was raised very religious, very small town values, um, very, very much a disagreement with with, with adult Rob, um, but same guy, uh, kind of, sort of. And those those little seeds that get planted, they add up eventually. It takes time. It won't happen like immediately. But, you know, you come back and you, 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 you bump into somebody after they're in college and they got away from the town that they're in and some of the no good friends that they had because that's who was in proximity uh, to them at the time. And, you know, you, you did the best of what's around with the friends that, that you had. But now you've gone out into the world, you've been able to pick some people with broader perspectives. My God, you're a new person. And that seed that you picked up in John David Anderson's book was what started it all. It was a slow growth thing. <laughs> We can certainly hope, but I also don't want to dismiss uh, what you said because I don't think we need to lose track of the fun either, man. Um, like I didn't fall in love with books as a kid because of the social messages that they were delivering to me. Um, yeah, you, they're seeds. Certainly they were there. Uh, I was vaguely aware of them, uh, but I fell in love with books because they made me laugh. And they scared me so much that I almost peed my pants. Uh, and I fell in love with books because there was the possibility that if I opened my closet door, right, uh, I could walk through and then I'd be in Narnia. And that would be incredibly awesome. Um, and so I think that should be always our first priority, right? Um, make it fun. Make it adventurous. Um, use our imaginations and our creativity to get them to love to read. And then once they're hooked, uh, we can needle them and poke them uh, and say, think about this, consider this, open your mind, right? Uh, and that's great. And, and I've met you know hundreds, thousands of young readers um, who are infinitely smarter and wiser than I am already. Um, and I attribute that to the fact that Honestly, they read books, right? Um, they they got hooked at them at a young age. Somebody read to them in bed, um, and they've you know explored all kinds of places that they couldn't get to otherwise, um, and put themselves in other people's shoes. And it's created empathy in them, and it's created an awareness. Uh, and you know, those are are things that we actually only get. That's a place we only get to once. We've already discovered the joy of reading, right? Uh, the pleasures of escaping uh, and investing in characters um, and getting to that climax uh, and seeing it all come together. So, uh, yeah, uh, we got to do that first. And then whatever room's left over, um, maybe try to change the world. I don't know. That's true. <laughs> I like it. One well, pizza, Batman, and the ambitious. You've <laughs> only got so much time. <laughs> why not? <laughs> but no, you're you're right. If you don't if you don't get them entertained and and, and get them uh, paying attention, then you're not going to get to the point where this, the seeds are there to that they're paying enough attention. I remember I just liked The Giver as a great science fiction story when I read it, and it wasn't until I grew up that oh wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't even like that joke that you get on the way home, except the way home is 12 years later. Oh, <laughs> that's what it was. Exactly. Oh, man, I love that book, too. Uh, and, you know, I think about the books that I, I loved as a kid. Um, I, I couldn't tell you what the redeeming value, uh, like the, the underlying social message of Lloyd Alexander is. 
Um, I just remember devouring those books, though, right? Uh, the High King and, and Terran Wanderer and all those, uh, and the Black Cauldron. Um, and now when I look back on it, uh, the value wasn't in anything that I learned, like any, I'm, I'm sure there's message there, be friends with creatures who have crunchies and munchies, right? Um, dark lords are bad, whatever. Uh, <laughs> this, this seems to be a recurring message, right? Uh, in, in middle grade literature, dark lords bad, uh, crunchies and munchies good. Um, but I, I think for me, like the value in that book was just broadening my imagination, right? Uh, and that's that's something else that you know young people's literature does uh, is it shows just how vast our creative minds are. Um, and uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of my first things that I ever wrote were just copies of things that I loved. Uh, my very first novel was called Load to Be One with the Universe. I wrote it when I was 17 years old. It was 150 pages long. I wrote it on a brother word processor typewriter with a 3.5 inch floppy disk drive, right? It had a three line LED screen. Uh, I finished that puppy, 150 pages. I hit print. It said insert paper. Uh, so I did. And it typed it out, uh, one letter after another. And then I had to insert another. It took me three and a half hours to print my novel, right? Uh, which is kind of ridiculous. So you're done. Your novel's yeah. gone forever. <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, but you know what it was? It was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Redux, right? Uh, it was just me appropriating Douglas Adams to my own ends, uh, down to his narrative voice. Um, I mean, it was fan fiction without necessarily using the characters' names. Um, but it's because I recognized all the potential in that universe that he had created, and I fell in love with it. Uh, and so even if nothing else, if uh, we write books and we create artworks of art, uh, and that causes you know, the next generation to become more creative uh, and invested in their own imaginations, then they'll write, you know, great works and create great works of art. Uh, and even if ours don't change the world, guess what? There's mine, right? Um, so I, I never try to underestimate the influence that one of my books can have on a reader because I understand the influence that so many books have had on me. Well, even on the off chance, and we know this isn't the case because you've already had quite a bit of, of a positive reader reaction to your books. You know readers that, that have been impacted by your books. But even supposing that that weren't the case, that, that uh, we could guarantee that would never happen, the impact I think that it would have on the writer to have made your own life better, to have written the thing, would still not be inconsiderable. Yeah. Um, I mean, you balance that against against all your other needs, right? Um, and I'd be lying, I'd be lying if I said it wouldn't be infinitely harder to, to be a writer uh, and not have it as my career, right? Um, that being a published writer makes writing uh, that much more guilt-free, as it were. Um, and so that when I want to spend six hours in a day, you know, in my own imaginary worlds, I can at least point to the occasional paycheck that it brings in. <laughs> like, it's okay, honey. Uh, this will pay off in the long run. Uh, I promise. Um, and, and it does, 
I mean, obviously it puts added pressure um, because then you're not just writing for yourself. Um, you're writing to be published. You're writing because you know that there's readership out there that has their own expectations. Um, but, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I think, yeah, incredibly valuable for the writer to have done it. But I'm also incredibly grateful and thankful that I get to do it for a living and so that there is a space, a sort of a dedicated space in my life uh, where I don't feel like I have to sacrifice so much to do it. You know, and I think about all those uh, writers out there who do work other 40 hour jobs or two jobs and, you know, raise their kids and it's 11 o'clock at night and they still feel that artistic impulse and they're bone tired and exhausted but they really have something important to say to the world and so they stay up until two o'clock in the morning you know getting that on paper um and i'd like to think that i have the chutzpah to do that um and maybe when i was 20 i could have you know uh but now like those people they definitely have my admiration um and i tell them i'm like you guys are heroes like uh, anybody who finds the time to write among everything else that's going on uh, if it's not their career if it's not their job um like that is dedication um but you know maybe i mean that's where i got started too uh so hopefully hopefully everybody who has something to say will well hopefully everybody who has something meaningful and important um and not harmful to say um we'll find a platform and uh, the capability to say it uh, well i don't know I and mean, maybe i'm in the minority on this i always think that uh, let the people with bad things to say go ahead and say those out loud too and let's let's hear them out and then we'll shoot them down and realize like it, if, if somebody if somebody a little bit smoother than ayn rand came back came out with a new atlas shrugged and mm. made those arguments just a little bit more convincing than than the cartoonish buffoonery that they are now and look how much trouble that book has caused oh right. my god with alan greenspan being an ayn rand devotee that's one of the reasons we have income inequality ayn rand did it to us but you know if somebody you can look at her ideas and say oh this is just a lonely person who did a lot of methamphetamine toward the end of her life uh who um the whole book is about I'm right and you're all wrong and I'm going to go with John Galt to a secret place and I'm going to be okay there. And like that, to me, that's transparent. Like, oh, you needed a hug. You didn't need a thousand page book. Um, but if somebody just a little bit more clever than that came along and, and, and put some, some spit shine on that, that would be worse. So no, leave Atlas Shrugged right where it is so people can read that, see it for the cartoonish buffoonery it is, shoot it down, and then have that, that idea rejected. You're inoculated against that silly idea, hopefully going forward. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I didn't think about the idea of inoculation, right? Um, ideology inoculation. Uh, there is definitely tremendous value in that. We need more inoculation in this world between you and me, right? <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe it doesn't always work out because there are there there. Alan Greenspan, by all accounts, pretty smart guy, still fell for it. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I did have a question. Speaking of uh, of writers from the past, there was something I caught for you. This is a Hoosier question. I'm about to to ask just just us Hoosiers here. Uh, but you've got these uh, wonderful Bixbyisms, 
where Miss Bixby gives these quotes that she doesn't uh, attribute to. And you, oh, the, the first Bixbyism in the book is, is from Mother Night. It's, uh, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. And then you don't say who, 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 who that quote's from. And I thought, you know, this is a fellow who knows he's going to be promoting this book in Indiana. And if you're promoting something in Indiana, you always say Kurt Vonnegut, world's greatest author, James Dean, world's greatest actor, Jack and Diane, world's best song, John Cougar, Mellencamp, bless him, all of our all of our Hoosier artists, we, we, we love them. And I, I was just curious, why not? I, I, I suppose that, you know, the people who know, know, and they're still going to be excited and talk to you about it. And you can still incorporate Vonnegut a little bit in your, in your impression. But if you're marketing books in Indiana, why not get on that line and get train early? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not on the train. Uh, I've got my uh, so it goes hat, right? Oh, um, now we're talking. So, but I, I think a lot of that just actually has to do with target audience, right, and genre. Um, and, you know, Miss Bixby can stand up there and say, uh, blah, blah, said this or blah, blah, said that. Um, and the kids are going to look at her and be like, Okay, yeah. Um, did, was it Beyonce? Right? I don't know. Is Beyonce still popular? Um, you know. Uh, so it's one of those things where you you separate the language, you separate uh, the meaning and the quote um, from the speaker, and you let the kids just grapple with the words themselves. Right. Um, and so, to me, at least taking it from the point of view of the three characters that are in the book, it didn't matter who said it. Uh, what mattered was Miss Bixby believed it, and therefore it had value, and therefore I should think about it and find a way that I can apply it to my current situation. Um, now, as an Indiana author, yeah, huge Vonnegut fan, right? Um, probably uh, at least reference him in every third book or quote him here or there. Um, but I, I. I struggle as a middle grade author to want to include too many references to the things that I love and adore um, because I'm not sure that all my readers also will love and adore them, you know, um, with the exception of Star Wars. I just assume everybody's going to love and adore Star Wars, even though I know that's not true. Uh, so every novel has a Star Wars reference. The people that don't appreciate Star Wars aren't the people you're going to reach with your novel. They're they're unreachable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm watching our time, and I know it's 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 flown by. Where did it go? Uh, it's, it's probably time to, to start thinking about land and this thing. But I I can't help but think about this idea of that you're writing three books a year, uh, two two to three um, mm -hmm. per year. Um, and you know that some of those aren't going uh, to be published. So what uh, what becomes of the brokenhearted? What uh, does that bother you? Is there are, is there some hope when you put those on a shelf of not to be published that eventually the market's going to change and then I'll whip that thing off the shelf and and we'll find a home for it? Or was it I had my experience? I got what I needed and I'm gratified. So it's it's OK that this isn't one that's going to find readers. It's definitely more the latter uh, in that when I, I think I said earlier, when I sit down to write a book, um, maybe I didn't say this, but I always sit down and write a book for one person, right? That's me. Um, I'm trying to satisfy, in many cases, the 12 or 13-year-old reader that I was growing up. Um, and so if I can do that, 
then it's a worthwhile experience. Also, of course, I think you learn something from everything that you write. Um, the ones that get published, and certainly you learn from the ones that don't get published. Uh, and whether or not, I mean, obviously I've got, what, 10, 11, 12 um, completed novels sitting on the hard drive uh, that I'm the only person who's ever read. And uh, if they ever see the light of day, it'll be because I think I went back to them with fresh eyes um, and made them better. Uh, it just wasn't their time. It wasn't my time to make them the best novel that they can be right now. Uh, and yeah, if the market changes and all of a sudden, um, let's imagine that I've got you know this superhero novel waiting in the wings and superheroes should become popular because they're not yet, uh, then, <laughs> oh, I'll just dust that off and throw it out there. I forget which book it was, whether it was Buick 8 or something like that, um, but it was a Stephen King novel, and I was think it was after he retired the second time, or maybe it was after he retired the first time, um, but he published it, and in his foreword, he's like, you know, this has been sitting around, and uh, I didn't think anybody wanted to read it, but then I'm like, you know what? People will read anything. You know, and he doesn't actually say that. Uh, I'm sort of paraphrasing, right? Uh, where he's like, you know, I know it's going to get published. And because I'm Stephen King, I know I'm going to make money off of it. Uh, so maybe there's merit in me going back to it and seeing if I can turn it into something that I'm proud of, right? Uh, and, you know, obviously... He did. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of one of those things where like you get it. I imagine you do get into a position if you're incredibly successful where, you know, it doesn't matter if the quality drops off. You're still going to find your audience and you're still going to sell a million copies. Um, the question is, do you have the integrity right, uh, to produce something that you're still proud of? And uh, I don't think I would want to put anything else out there uh, that. I couldn't talk about it and say, yeah, this was as good as I could do at the time, right? Um, I don't know that I have yet. I, I, I think I've tried as hard as I can on every book that's gone out there. Are they perfect? No. Got them. They, all, they all have problems. So flawed, right? I'm still learning so much. Um, but I think at the time, they were the best books that I could write. Uh, and hopefully, they'll get better. Maybe they'll get worse. Who knows? <laughs> um, I'm not going to stop trying. There was, I think, uh, Blaze. It was a Richard Bachman novel after Bachman had been proven to be Stephen King came out, and he had something like that in the foreword where it's like, this is a novel that I wrote forever ago, and I've, I've, I've cleaned it up a little bit, and I'm like, no, you should have left it in the trunk, man. That... <laughs> I'm glad you wrote that and you learned the lessons that you needed to know that made, let you go on to write The Shining and, and all the other classics. But right. I, I could have lived my whole life without reading plays. Yeah. It would have been fine. And, yeah. and what happens then if uh, upon upon having lived a long and successful life, extended artificially by at least 100 years, but then after that, your, your great-grandchildren say, hey, you know, we're the great-grandchildren of the great novelist John David Anderson. Uh, and he's got this trunk of novels that he never published. And wouldn't you know it, rent's due. Let's get those bad boys out there. <laughs> that bother you or you don't care at that point because you're someplace else where this is no longer a concern? I've actually never considered this question. Um, but I, I do 
Now that you're now that you're saying it, uh, my initial impulse is to say, yeah, great grandchildren, go make a mint, right? Um, go go milk as much out of this as you possibly can. Uh, but the way you phrase it makes me think that that's not the reaction I should have. That maybe I should even be on the grave, uh, be concerned about my own artistic integrity. Uh, that sounds more benevolent if you want your grandkids to live a nice life. I think. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and again, it's impossible to know what you know future generations will consider to be um, fantastic works of art or, or even just good beach reads. Um, but I, I want to say that if it's good enough. I'll really fight for it, right? Um, and I'll, I think you can find a way to get it out there into the world. Um, and maybe I'll look back on some of these things that I've written that I haven't published, and I'll make them good enough. Um, who knows? Uh, but yeah, it, it's hard for me to think about that lasting, the idea of lasting legacy. I know that's one of the things that we as authors kind of go into it for, uh, is that sort of elusive pipe dream that, yeah, Three generations from now, our books will still be on the shelf. Um, but there's so many books on the shelf, Rob. I mean, I walk into a bookstore now, and I'm just like, how are all these people publishing novels? Like, where does all this stuff come from? Um, and, you know, how does anybody read even one gazillionth uh, of, the, of the stories that are out there, um, let alone manage to float to the top and get read by millions and millions of people? Uh, and so I've gotten to the point where like fleeting success is really what I'm content with. Like, I'm just going to keep I'm going to keep this train chugging for as long as I can, uh, until I run it off the cliff. Um, and then we'll try something else, you know? Uh, and if I should get lucky and write something that does stand the test of time, um, or gets turned into a movie, right? uh then that's icing on the cake but uh it's 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 not the be all to end all i've just given myself that already because what difference is it make i just assume that the moment i die my books will immediately jump in tremendous value everyone will read them they will be taught in every classroom and if i'm wrong who cares yes I, I i frequently think there's two possibilities either william shakespeare um has no idea we're reading his stuff I died completely unaware. Like I, I wish I had made more money, or I, I guess I was really King James the whole time. Whatever, whatever theory you subscribe to, and 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 then and then he dies, and he has no idea, or he is in some afterlife looking down and like, ah, oh, this is really satisfying, and this afterlife is so uninteresting to me that I'm just focused on those present day humans and making sure that they're writing the best possible term papers. And op oh, Kenneth Branagh, you better make a good adaptation of this one, buddy. I, I imagine that if he is in an afterlife, he's writing new plays. He's not focused on what we're doing with the old stuff. For sure, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I guess there are probably ways that we could guarantee uh, our longevity uh, and our infamy. Um, maybe if we do uh, die tragically um, in some kind of mirror episode that uh, directly translates to something that's happened in our own novels. That would be cool. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily want to want to set that process in motion um, just yet. Um, I don't know. You know, fame, like, I, I'm not famous. I don't know if you consider yourself famous. 
Um, kids will ask me that at school visits all the time. They're like, wow, are you famous? Did I just meet a famous person? And I just tell them the truth. I'm like, no, nobody knows me. Um, you want to tell the truth? Uh, I've had people recognize me on the street once. Uh, it was at a librarian's conference and it was right outside of the convention center, right? Um, and so, you know, it's got to be a very specific audience at a very specific place in time. And then maybe one in a million chance I'm going to get recognized. Um, so, yeah, I think for, for most writers, it's probably uh, not about uh, not about fame or, or living beyond beyond just what they produce at the time. Um, it's about that aching need, right, to tell the story. And then hopefully uh, that connection with that reader that comes after um, where some kid just says, I loved your book. Uh, it's the first book I've read all year, right? And you're like, that's it. Like, that's the whole reason I do it, right? Um, was to get you to sit down. Those grandchildren are going to look at those 10 novels. And, you know, they just need a little bit of touching up. Fortunately, we have granddad's old toothbrush. Let's just clone him and get him to come back and, and touch these episode problems. <laughs> well, provided the aliens do show up to provide that kind of intense cloning technology, then yes, we can pull that off. Oh, man. So who would you, who would you bring back? Oh, if I could bring back anybody. I mean, it's not uh, been awesome, obviously. Me again. <laughs> once isn't once is enough. <laughs> oh. oh, man, that's uh, I. You have stumped me. Uh, I guess maybe Shakespeare just to solve that mystery and see. Okay. I, that's too much responsibility. I should not be the person to decide what we're going to do with the cloning technology. You right. pick. Who will we bring him back? <laughs> oh, I mean, does it have to be an author? Yeah, yeah, it can be Genghis Khan if you really want to spice things up. Whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's too easy to say Einstein, right? Um, but, you know, to have uh, the kind of mind um that just solved problems uh that were previously unsolvable uh also with sort of that humility humanity and wit um and you know i think we could use more people like that in the world um geniuses uh with a heart um and i know there are a lot of them out there um i feel like i have the heart i just like the genius uh so you know uh that's one possibility um, I don't know. A. A. Milne. I don't know anything about A. A. Milne. Um, I just know I love Winnie the Pooh, uh, and I feel like we could use some more Winnie the Pooh stories too. Um, so. <laughs> well, I could uh, keep you here with with what ifs all night, and I, and I won't do it. Um, I, I I do appreciate your time, and you've been extremely uh, generous with it. Uh, this has been just fantastic. Um, you're going to keep writing books. We should do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. For uh, tonight, I always try to end with some variation of this question. Uh, and that is, if you could go back to the start of your career or whenever it would be useful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made the path easier for you and might make the path easier for all the authors watching or listening to us and subscribing uh, to us, what would you go back and, and, and what would you tell yourself? All right, so this is what I think I would tell myself. Um, I would tell myself that, and this is a quote, maybe it's a Vonnegut quote, 
uh, I don't know, um, but this will all be useful to you, right? Um, whatever it is that you're going through, and maybe this is a function of me being a middle grade author, right? Uh, and tapping into that sort of tumultuous uh, churning, you know, cesspool of emotions uh, that we're all going through as we make that sort of transition to adulthood. Um, but just say, you know what, you know, all of this stuff, like if you're going to end up being a writer, um, like tap into it all, um, write it down now, even if it's not in novel form or poetry form or short story form, um, because all the pain and the joy and all that stuff that you experienced so intensely at that time, um, it's going to come back. Uh, and it's going to provide some outstanding characters uh, and some great conflicts um, and, you know, some really cool story twists uh, once you once you can harness that stuff uh, and access it. Um, and the other thing I would say is be more curious. Uh, I was an avid reader. Um, and so I learned a lot, obviously, from the books that I read, but I don't know I learned as much from the life that I led uh, that I could have. Um, I was, you know, sort of uh, antisocial and, you know, um, introverted and preferred to stay in my little cubby and, and do my thing. Um, as I think a lot of, you know, uh, young writers are. Uh, but I think the more you experience of the world from as young age as you can, um, the richer the worlds that your characters inhabit will be. And I think I feel like in some ways I've been playing catch up uh, to that as an author, you know, 10 books then now 11 and 12 coming out. Uh, and I'm like, you know, what? I need to see the world uh, because we can't we can't keep setting every book uh, in some unnamed city in the Midwest. Um, although I appreciate, you know, that I've got my roots established. Uh, it would be nice uh, to be a little more worldly. Um, so, yeah, be curious. Learn as many different things as you can. Um, and, you know, if you're a young writer, be a young lots of other things, right? Um, yeah, always write and read, uh, but also be a young explorer and a young scientist uh, and a young engineer and maybe even for a little while a young doctor or a young lawyer, um, you know, learn to cook. Um, I don't know. Uh, take care of animals. Just do other things uh, because... Writing is about taking experience and giving it meaning, right, by putting it in this form um, that we call story and narrative. Uh, and if you don't have the experience, then I feel like that narrative is kind of empty, right? Um, you can create something wholly formed out of your imagination, um, but I don't feel like it carries as much emotional weight if you haven't gone out and lived at least part of it. Uh, so that would be it. Stay curious. See the world. Read, write, write it down, and know that whatever you're going through, you'll put it on the page eventually and maybe make a little money off of it. Where, uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh, thanks for asking. I am at uh, www.johndavidandersonauthor.org. Um, no, sorry, www.dondavidanderson.org is the website. Um, and then uh, from there, you can reach me on Twitter, Anderson underscore author, um, or you can reach me through email. Uh, I keep my social media presence fairly low key, um, mostly because uh, I 
I don't want to. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't say that. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, like, uh, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too overwhelming for me um, to, to keep track of. Uh, Twitter's enough. Um, there's enough going on in there to keep me busy for, for hours and hours. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I love when young readers write to me. Uh, I always write them back. Um, one advantage of not being famous, right, is uh, you have plenty of time to still answer your emails. Um, so if there's anybody out there who um, likes my novels or doesn't like them, wants to tell me all about it, um, yeah, I'll even welcome that. Uh, so yeah. Um, Steve Donish, you know who I am. Go to middlegradeninja.com. There are thousands of interviews with uh, authors, uh, editors, agents, all the world's best people. Everything you could ever want to know and more at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. Uh, and as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.